Our first conference, Remade, Retail Media Unmade, is now a fortnight away. Come to hear from the key players in one of the most talked about sectors. Leave with your own retail media playbook. Remade takes place on March the 2nd in Sydney. Go to remade.net.au to find out more. Remade.net.au My guest is Ben Willey. Once you've been in media for anything more than 20 years, you count as a veteran. So Ben's that and then some. For the last decade, he's headed up media at Spinach Advertising in Melbourne. He's media agency through and through, including working for Total Media back in the day, with Icon, and a decade with Initiative in London and Melbourne. Uh, ben, welcome along. Now, Ben, um, amongst other things, leads the Spinach State of the Nation report, which we'll probably see the next edition of that quite soon, which focuses on the big trends in media consumers. Um, what are you thinking about at the moment? G'day, Tim. Well, thank you very much for having me on the pod. I'm really excited to be here. What are we thinking about at the moment? Wow, what a big question. And aren't we in a really, really interesting and exciting times at the moment? I mean, we've got potentially a lot of headwinds and we're coming out of two years of absolute chaos. So um, consumers have changed and they've changed a lot. And, um, you know, we're looking forward to expanding on their habits and how we think marketers and advertisers can take advantage of that and also what we think is going to happen in the next six months um, and uh, how bad is it going to be and what should advertisers think about to take advantage of what is a very unusual situation and a situation a lot of marketers may not have seen in their career. And there's a there's an awful lot we can cover in all of that. Um, I suppose one, th- one thought or one question that leaps immediately to mind is, is absolutely consumers have changed. Do you think um, marketers have changed as rapidly as consumers have? Absolutely. And I think in many cases, marketers have had to change and it's a bit of a case of change or die. Um, certainly the clients we work with have had to be really, really flexible. And, um, you know, there was a lot of talk about flexibility pre the pandemic, but gee, didn't we see it happening through that two year period? You know, flexibility of channel, flexibility of strategy, creative, um, by state, by market. So, you know, I would argue that uh, marketers are very flexible and I would also argue that they've uh, become a lot like consumers have in a way which is more considered. So, I mean, one of the trends we're seeing with consumers is they're really thinking about the kind of purchases they're making, big and small. And I think marketers are doing the same. And there's a lot less of that, oh, this is a shiny new toy. We need to jump on it. We need to throw a huge amount of money at it. And I don't think that's happening at the moment. I think marketers are saying, well, let's be a bit more considered. Let's use data to tell us what's really working and driving our KPIs before we lurch towards the next big shiny toy, which is probably chat GPT, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point. But, you, you know, I'm, I'm really positive about marketers and their approach to their own jobs. I think they're really considered and... um perhaps even better to work with than they have been because uh, they've really had to focus on what worked during what was a tough period. And again, that pressure's coming to marketers now. They're going to absolutely get asked a lot of questions over the next few months 
you know, potentially another three interest rate rises, potentially a recession, you know, marketers are really focused on their job and focused on flexibility, in my humble opinion. Now, just going back to uh, an, an interesting point you made there about, yes, yeah, sort of marketers resisting now jumping onto every, you didn't use the word bandwagon, but every new thing that comes along. Um, I read a really interesting piece, I think on LinkedIn, just just, just in the last few days from um, Henry Innes from Mutinex. And he was talking about the example of media people and how if they can jump onto a new thing that's working, they can sometimes buy it at an efficient price before the market fully prices it in. Um, so how do you balance that thing of, you know, being, I don't know, first into a fad versus first into, you know, the, I guess, the early days of targeting in Facebook would have been an amazing price or so on. So how do you actually stay ahead of the curve on that and actually help your clients buy at the right price for something new? Oh, very, very good question. And we talk about that a bit in here about, you know, what things we should uh, talk to our clients about and how we should package them. And it really comes down to um, what's the brand, what's the brand objectives, um, how relevant is the channel? You know, there's there's a lot of people saying, well, we need to be doing a huge amount in TikTok just on the basis that TikTok is a bit hot. Now, if you've got an audience that's male and over 40, well, that that's not where they're living. So really it's about making sure you've got the three key things when it comes to comms planning, which is really target audience, um, the medium, and your objective. And if you've got an overlap on all of those things, well, then you can justify doing a test. But you've also got to have an organisation that is comfortable testing and learning and comfortable saying, we don't expect this to set the world on fire. We're doing this for reasons of perhaps getting one step ahead of our competitors or perhaps getting in at the ground floor so we can do these things more cost efficiently than the rest of the market. But it's a great question. And that's the key to having great clients is they will probe and debate and you'll talk about the pros and cons. And, you know, they don't go into those discussions with a preconceived point of view. They're really open to debate is really healthy, in my opinion. Well, look, um, something else I want to pick you up on as well is is the, your your willingness to at least contemplate the R word of recession. I remember uh, we, 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 we ran an um, unmade event where we talked about, you know, sort of uh, marketing at a time when maybe there was a bit of a downturn coming. And I, I remember somebody after we came off stage sort of told me off for allowing one of the panellists to predict there was a recession and not challenge them on it. Um, I mean, it's, it's starting to feel that the drumbeat now is we're on a, you know, it could go either way. Um, is that the way you're seeing it for 2023, do you think? Oh, well, talk about mixed signals at the moment. Absolutely. And I've got no fear of using the R word. It's only, um, it's defined pretty straightforward as, you know, two quarters of negative growth and it's not a disaster. And when you get to my age, you've been through a few and you've seen them and it, you know, a lot of agencies will come out of them stronger and smarter and fitter. So I don't, and a lot of clients the same. So I don't have a problem with saying it. Um, but gee, there are some really mixed signals at the moment. And I wouldn't want Philip Lowe's job, the chairman of the Reserve Bank, for all the money in the world at the moment, because um, I tell you what, opinions are like arseholes and everyone's got one. 
and a lot of them stink. So, um, look, my opinion on this topic is that there are so many mixed signals. It's um, we just don't know what's going to happen. We're definitely going to see more interest rate rises. We're definitely going to see a contraction of spend. Um, you know, if you believe uh, some of the reports that are out today, there are um, the average person on a six hundred thousand dollar mortgage going to have to find an extra $16,000 a year in mortgage payments. I mean, that's absolutely huge. At the same time, there's people talking about the removal of $20 billion out of the Australian economy through increased interest payments, which equates to about one percentage point of GDP growth. So there's a lot to be very nervous about. There's also a lot to be really, really positive about. We've got incredibly low unemployment, you know, anything under 5% was full employment when I first studied economics. We've got an economy that has pretty good fundamentals. There is still a huge amount of demand to dig stuff out of the ground, and we've got the world's biggest economy starting to open up to us for a lot of uh, products that have previously been closed. So I think it's on a knife edge. I think it could potentially go either way, but the smart money will be prepared for it to go either way and have strategies in place and be flexible enough that if it does turn south, that they know what they're doing and they've got the justification to their boards and their management that says, we're taking this course of action because we know it works and here's the evidence. I suppose the other thing about the world of advertising and media is it doesn't actually need the economy to be in recession for advertising spend to have a downturn. It, 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 it feels like it's one of those forward indicators that we see more advertising recessions and I suppose advertising booms than the rest of the economy does. Um, yeah, look, it's a great point. And I mean, if you look at the SMI data, we've had in the calendar year to the end of 2023, we're at $8.9 billion and we're the largest spend we've ever had. Now, SMI doesn't cover all advertising spend, but it's the majority uh, because that's what comes through the agencies. But if you look at the last two months that are published, November was flat and December was minus 10% um, year on year. So um, if, if those two months make a trend, we're, you know, and we're a leading indicator, well, yes, definitely. I mean, we talk a lot internally about what are the big levers that drive consumer confidence and what drives consumer confidence drives advertiser confidence, right? So for us, we have a belief that there are three or four key things that drive consumer confidence. One is house prices. One is um, electricity prices, petrol prices, um, and then interest rates. And you know, almost all of those metrics, perhaps apart from petrol prices, are uh, going in a direction which takes away people's confidence. So, um, yeah, there's there's a lot that would suggest the advertising industry is up for some leaner times in the next few months. And if you listen to James Warburton, um, I think he said mid to high single digit uh, drop in the next six months for um, Seven in the TV category. So um, Yeah, James Warburton being the CEO of Seven. Well, let's get into, because we are just at the, the beginnings of earnings season, yeah, let's get into sort of your take on some of the companies that are reported um, so far. Now, now the 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 first sort of hot off the press one, I suppose, was one of the things which maybe raised an eyebrow or two about um, uh, Seven's results. And this is quite a, 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 a nerdy inside baseball question: was the the decision 
not to share with the market their metro advertising revenue share, which has been one of those numbers which over the years we've um we've we've judged the success of seven of nine and ten sales teams by. So seven saying actually we're gonna to switch to our total TV share, which takes in regional, metro and digital revenue as well. Um how do you how do you feel about that? That feels to me it's a little bit of a loss of transparency. Or am I overreacting? Oh, I think good on them from taking the goalposts from one end of the field and trying to move them over to the wing. Um, you know, you've got nothing to lose by having a crack, but they will have to at some point, even privately, release those numbers because all of the analysts that uh, report for the big investment banks on these big listed companies use that as one of their key indicators in their models. So um, I think it was one of the first questions and um, I don't see that question going away in the short term. And there's other ways we can get access to that number anyway. So it's not a complete secret. So good on them for having a try, but I don't think in the long term they'll be able to get away with not publicly reporting that number. And then more widely, I suppose, what we've seen is the, uh, by the looks of it, the, the early stages of um, them taking control of Prime, the, what had been the regional affiliate, doesn't, you know, doesn't seem to have hurt. Not sure it's it dramatically kind of improved the performance of the business as a whole. But, um, but you know, it felt like a company where there weren't, there weren't many surprises in this kind of, you know, piece of reporting. The, the sort of the backward looking bit was okay. It's what they had to say looking forward that um, caused, I suppose, more more nervousness for the market. Yeah, look, I, I think the um, the prime acquisition is an absolute no-brainer and it's the least they can do. Um, and I think they're going to have to come up with some sort of merger or acquisition. And if you look at some of the key metrics that the stock market uses to value Australian media companies, is I, I think they should have as much flexibility to grow and get as big as possible because they are just absolute minnows compared to some of the big US media companies. And I'm looking at some numbers in front of me and, you know, Nine Entertainment, the biggest in Australia, has a market capitalisation, which means if you sold all the shares um, at about today's value of about 3.5 billion Australian dollars. Now, if you compared that to someone like Meta, which is Facebook and Instagram, it's, you know, 648 billion. Um, you know, Apple and Google are into the trillions. Netflix is 200 billion. So, I mean, we're talking about competing with, with, and they do genuinely compete with these businesses that have got ridiculously deep pockets, huge amounts of money, and access to a huge amount of data. And that's the big thing that I think Channel 7 is looking to do. And something they did very well in the Olympics is improve their um, addressability. And that's what we want as advertisers. We want to talk to individuals and we want to use email addresses and first party data to identify people. So if I, you know, if I think about an organization like Seven, um, you know, their market capitalization is only 700 million compared to Nine's 3.5 billion. Now that's a staggering difference. And some of the other metrics like price to earnings ratio, i.e. the price of the share price divided by their earnings, is, you know, you've got Nine Entertainment running at about 11, Seven West Media running at four, 
and Netflix running at 30. So, you know, the markets just think these businesses are better. So one of the ways Australian companies will do better is, is if they grow. So that leads us into the discussion about um, here, there and everywhere, HT&E or ARN. Um, the big- yeah, so that was reported this week in the Australian Financial Review, the sort of speculation that there could be some sort of, and that the mechanism wasn't set out, but takeover or merger or something to bring uh, HT&E and Seven West Media together. Yeah, and that, that to me is a completely logical move for both businesses because they both get um, the scale that they need. They improve both of their addressability um, and it makes them a bigger business. And the other thing we re- that's really important when you're a media business is you're your own biggest client. So if you've got a very hot sporting event like the AFL or the um, tennis, the Australian Open tennis, that as a vehicle to promote your other shows is incredibly powerful. So to have other mediums like um, audio and potentially even press and online to help you drive people in and around your own ecosystem is really, really powerful. And that's part of the reason that Nine Entertainment enjoys a higher market capitalisation and a higher multiple or price-to-earnings ratio because the market sees them having the ability to do that. And that's perhaps, and stop me if I'm going on and boring your listeners, Tim, or you, is that, that not at all? No, I'm very nerdy about this stuff, and and that leads us to the the nines investment in the Olympics, and that's why. Ah, uh, well, let's. Well, we will come back to the Olympics. So I do want your thought on it. Now, we'll, we'll we'll carry on if it's okay. Carry on playing media ownership chess for a minute, because I'd love to get your take. Where because obviously we talked about HTE and seven. The the other place where it feels like there's potentially deals to be done is to bring outdoor into the mix, either through own media or maybe through QMS. What what do you see as being natural combinations with outdoor plus another media owner? Oh, well, I, um, I'm glad you asked that because I'm a bit of a history nerd. And those of you who don't mind casting their mind back will remember that Network 10 owned iCorp many, many years ago. And I wouldn't say they made a great success of it, but I mean, the outdoor industry's changed so dramatically in the last 10 years. We've now got the majority of large format sites digitised. So what that means is the supply of inventory where you used to sell one billboard to one advertiser for a month. You know, you can now potentially sell it to 10 advertisers a day or 10 advertisers an hour before you even start looking at programmatic and I won't go down that rabbit hole just yet. So really there's a huge amount of inventory in the outdoor space Outdoor and television are two natural mediums. You know, one of the bigger categories advertising on billboards is media companies and TV stations. So for me, that isn't just a totally natural fit. I mean, the two just go together like nothing else. So, um, you know, I would expect to see that to me would be a really sensible merger and a really great opportunity to make the sum of the parts greater than the whole. And that sort of virtuous circle of continuing to promote their own products um, and using their own inventory, I just think would be the kind of thing that would really help give them a leg up against these digital monoliths that are um, global and cashed up to the hilt and really coming to change the, dramatically the marketplace in Australia if we're not careful. And uh, just before we come off um, earnings, um 
shortly after we, we, we upload this conversation, the Southern Cross Stereo results should come in. What will you be looking out for there? Well, I think we'll be looking uh, very much for the performance of the audio division. Post-pandemic, we've seen strength in audio. And I, I think um, all of the big audio companies in Australia have been fantastically innovative and they've really done a great job of reminding us as advertisers that the way we consume the medium has changed. It's not all about breakfast in our car, sitting in traffic. You know, we're now listening on smart devices, we're streaming, we're listening to podcasts. And, I, you know, I'd be really interested to see how the listener brand has gone for SCA. I think that's a fantastic app. I've used it myself. It's good for advertisers. And really, it's the first step in what will be a play for addressability. So I will sign in. They'll learn that I'm into Yacht Rock and you're into, I don't know, Mozart, Tim, or something far more refined than me. And um, and they'll be able to apply as much of those learnings as possible. And, and they'll be able to use um, much more of that data to make targeting more effective, to make their um, program stickier in all sorts of ways. So for me, I think uh, the listener app and what's happening in that digital environment will be perhaps the most interesting part of of their numbers. I'm not sure how committed they are to the television part of their business. I'm not sure how much it makes sense. I don't believe they've done a great job of integrating the two, and I'm, I'm not sure they're interested, to be honest. So um, stand by for what happens in that space. Yeah, and do you think that'll just be, at some point, Paramount will tidy it up, do the deal, and just, just pick up the TV assets because that's the current affiliation? Oh, well, look, it makes sense, and it's probably the most efficient use of the asset, and that's what markets like. They like an asset to sweat um, and to, um doesn't matter what you pay for it, but as long as you can drive it hard, um, and they would be the people, in my opinion, who could drive it the hardest and get the most out of it. You mentioned the Olympics earlier. Um, let's talk about sports rights, because there's never really been a period like it for everything changing hands or or at least the deals being done because not everything changed hands um why firstly when it comes to tv broadcasters why does sport matter so much commercially to the tv owners oh wow that's a deep question and i'll, I'll stick with the top few layers it matters i think most importantly because the viewers are so engaged and there's so many of them and that comes back to my earlier point about TV stations being their own biggest clients. So they can use that high level of engagement consistently to drive their other programs. So that's part number one. Part number two is advertisers love sport. Um, again, the viewers are very engaged. Often there's fewer commercial breaks than there are in regular programming. There's a hell of a lot of sponsorship opportunities. So they can drive a lot of revenue uh, the advertisers can get a lot out of it. The networks can get a lot out of it. And then the third part of it is really that there are certain genres or categories that the Australian networks have given up on. You know, they don't do a huge amount of drama. They don't do a huge amount of com comedy. They don't make that many miniseries anymore. So really, I mean, apart from sport, news and reality or shiny floor, they're the sort of the three big um, pillars of their business. So um, sport's absolutely key. And, you know, if I was a TV exec in Australia, I'd be absolutely 
um, really, really worried about the big global players coming and and stealing that. And I think the you know the next AFL deal we've seen has made a few people go because you know it doesn't take much for a big overseas company to go. Oh well, let's use Australia as a bit of a testing ground, and you know um, Amazon have bought Thursday night uh, football in the US. There wouldn't be much more for the, for them to say, okay, well let's scoop up a huge amount of this. So I think we'll start with the AFL. Looking at that, I think that's a fantastic deal because the fans don't have to buy any more streaming services. There's only one. Um, the AFL wins because they get more money out of the same asset. They sweat it harder. Um, and, it, it, you know, I think it's it's a good all-round position. It also makes it a bit harder for the NRL and the A-League to generate as much because there's only so much water in the well and the AFL have taken... You know, it would feel like every last dropout. So that, for me, I think is um, is really, really fascinating. Um, and I might just take a, de- a deep breath before you ask me about the Olympics. <laughs> well, the Olympics was the big one, wasn't it, really? Because it was almost, we saw, I guess, nine made things look very routine when it came to re-signing NRL, to re-signing tennis. And then, of course, you know, the one big move out of all this in this cycle was the Olympics, which will no longer be on seven and and will be across uh, nine's various platforms. And what a what a fantastic contentious move for um, pundits to debate for a long time coming. Because um, obviously Channel Seven said no, we can't. We're not paying any more for it. So there's the debate about did they pay over the odds for it. There's the second part of it that is we all know when uh, you only have to open up your history books to see that when the Olympics is in a time zone in the middle of the night, it doesn't rate very well in Australia. Long gone are the days when Olympics delivers 80% commercial share of the number one medium. Um, But then the flip side of that is is you've got a Brisbane Olympics, which is going to be a ratings bonanza. People are going to go mad for it. Um, and they've got the ability to amortise it across uh, across their digital products, across newspapers, and across audio, which is is really where I think they're going to put a lot of their focus and a lot of their effort. So you've got all of the, all of those things going on, and I think the other part of it is is we need to see a few more Olympic heroes. There used to be a time in the lead up to the Olympics where everybody on the street was all of a sudden an expert about swimming and an expert about this sport, and they could tell you who the next young gun was in Butterfly and the next young gun in the individual medley. And I don't think Seven have done that, and I know why, because it puts pressure on the athletes, but there, there is a requirement to really build the excitement of the Olympics again in a way that it hasn't necessarily happened in the last few series. So we, we won't know until the end of the Brisbane campaign whether it's been a good investment or not, um, but my opinion is is that it's it's big, it's ballsy, it's brash, and good on them for having a crack because they're the sorts of things, big big ballsy decisions are the sorts of things that made Australian TV networks in the past and will make them in the future. And for your clients, would there be, if they were potential sponsors of the Olympics, would there be an ambition for a super long deal they can plan around, you know, so that they're not just talking to the, the the team at nine about Paris, but they're also talking about LA and Brisbane as, you know, effectively this sort of, you know, um, 
multi-Olympics arrangement that you can you can get some real longevity? Or do people prefer not to make those sort of commitments? Oh, I'm sure Nine would love to tell everyone that they've got some multi-year commitments, but I just don't think advertisers can are able to do that. It's it's too long out of their cycles. So, I mean, you could maybe make a commitment for a summer followed by a winter Olympics, but anything beyond that, I think, would be a bit too ambitious. And I can't imagine any clients comfortably doing that um, unless to say, hey, we want first rights and maybe paying a, a slight premium to have first right of refusal in their own category. But beyond that, I can't see it happening. Because I presume Brisbane will be the one that everyone's really going to want um, and it's going to be the getting through the first two in order to get to Brisbane, presumably. Oh, and how exciting is Brisbane going to be too? Um, I, I can't wait. I was living overseas when the Sydney Olympics was on, so I haven't seen an Olympics here in Australia and I can't wait. And what a better place to hold events like swimming that we dominate in, or maybe dominate's a strong word, that we do uh, better than other events in. Um, so, yeah, that'll be the one in the lead up to that that advertisers will be all over it. And what Nine will be saying at the time is they'll be having their first negotiations with the people who supported them. So there will definitely be some logic for longevity because, um, you, you know, they're a, a listed business and they want to make commitments as much as possible to their shareholders and advertisers that make commitments to them are the ones that they will favour. Well, you've sort of alluded to the likelihoods of the streamers maybe coming in on sport at some point. They're certainly already coming in on advertising. What do you make of Netflix launching advertising tier in Australia? Have they had the impact we were expecting yet? <laughs> oh, what a great question. There's certainly some TV execs who are laughing into their glasses of champagne at expensive restaurants um, when they've read some of the reports of how Netflix advertising's going. And it, look, it's still very, very early days, but uh, what we've seen and what's been reported, so this isn't fact, I'm just repeating what I've read, is that Netflix have been unable to deliver the audience on the deals um, for that, that they have offered to advertisers in Australia. And I'm not surprised by that. And I think Brian, Blind Freddy could have seen that one coming. Um, I mean, I don't know anyone who wants a Netflix password that doesn't have one. I'm sure you could get one from your grandmother's uncle's mate's dog and um, watch whatever you wanted to. So until Netflix really start to police the password sharing, Big, and, till, and also until they start to advertise um, this ad-supported level, they're not going to recruit enough people and it's going to be a real challenge for advertisers to get that audience. Um, now, we want that and that'll be a part of the battle for your eyeballs that's going on between YouTube, BVOD and TV stations. And I have no doubt they will become a player, but I think there's a lot of people going, oh, geez, this is a lot harder than we thought it was going to be. Um, that perhaps weren't thinking that six months ago. Well, let's zigzag around a few fairly quickly around some of the other topics that are uh, exercising your thinking. You've already touched on the rise of generative AI with ChatGPT. Uh, how do you reckon that is going to change the world, for the world of media? Well, I think um, I'm, I'm a bit disappointed, actually, because I was hoping there was going to be more tweets and LinkedIn articles about how Jack chat GPT was going to change marketing forever and we're all going to be made redundant. Yes, it's funny we've not really heard much yet, have we? Oh, there hasn't been enough of that. And 
because it would have been a great platform for Professor Ritson to really come out and slap people around, which is always entertaining. Um, but look, I think it's it's an enormous danger to, to Alphabet or Google's is it forty two billion dollar search business. Um, I, I've certainly had a play with it myself. I think it's fascinating. Um, some of the things I've seen have been really interesting. Some have been borderline, but it, there are some things where search just does not cut it, and AI really helps you navigate through that. So there is absolutely no doubt there is a role for advertising to play. I just don't know what that looks like. And I've read so many articles when we all got Google Homes and Amazon Alexas about how voice was going to fundamentally change search, and if you weren't on board, you were going to be a complete dinosaur, and none of that's eventuated yet. So um, I'm quietly confident in saying it's going to have an impact. I've just got no idea what that impact is going to be um, and how they're going to integrate it. And the battle's really, really exciting. Microsoft have put a lot into it. They're hoping to regenerate, rejuvenate Bing. Um, you know, Google are perhaps a bit late to the party. Uh, maybe they'd been napping. Maybe they didn't think anyone was as good. But um, we're about to see some really interesting plays in that space. Um, and there will be some categories which will do really well. And I, I personally, I think travel's a really interesting one because I don't just want to search for a, a flight from, you know, Melbourne to Singapore. I want to search for a flight and a hotel and transfers and all of this other stuff. Now, chat GPT is so much better equipped to put all of that together for me than Google search is. So, you know, how long will it be before it starts to creep into our life and before we know it, it's a fundamental part of what we're doing? Well, uh, what else in the business at the moment? What's what's getting harder? What's getting easier? Oh, jeez. That's a very good question. Um, I think uh, technology is doing both. I think technology is making our life harder and our life easier. I heard a really good thing about ChatGPT. Someone said, you won't lose your job to ChatGPT, but you will lose your job to someone who can communicate with it. And that's really what's happening. What's happened so much in in media nowadays. Um, and if you, you you know, I know programmatic is a bit of a dirty word, and we prefer to use the word automation. But in many ways, that has made our life so much easier. You know, we can um, create a campaign from someone's house at eleven o'clock at night, upload Creative, uh, run it on Bvod, YouTube, digital audio, a million places. Uh, relatively easy. So that part of it has made it easier, but in fact, it's made it harder because there's so many opportunities in there. Well, what data are we applying? Are we applying some flybys data to this segment? And, you know, what are our bid prices like? And what are the, all the other variables that we want to put into that? So I think what I'm saying is, is if you work in media and, you, you know, you're still buying traditional linear media, you want to start looking around because there's going to be less and less options in that area. And if the economy gets tight, um, you know, agencies are going to hold on to the smart people who know how to drive those computers or those demand side platforms. So I've given you the politician's answer there, Tim, um, with, a, with a foot in each camp. Well, um, final question for me, and this is a question I'm asking all of our podcast guests this year. What would your critics say about you? And what would your supporters 
say about you? You can interpret the question however you want. Um, I think my critics would say that I, um, apart from having an annoying surname, um, is that I sometimes don't switch off. You know, I, I, I love this business. I'm, I'm really fortunate. I'm fascinated by ads, fascinated by media and what people consume. And I think my wife, who is my greatest advocate and my greatest critic, would probably say to me, stop asking people at dinner parties what they read and what they watch and what they like. Um, and I think my supporters would perhaps say that I'm loyal. I like to think of myself as loyal. And if you look at my LinkedIn, you know, I, I, I tend to stay in jobs for a, a, a very long time. Um, and I, you know, I disagree with that assertion that you've got to move around. I think there's a lot to be said for loyalty and it's a much undervalued, um, attribute in our, in our current environment. And I also think that, um, We've seen a highly unusual candidate market and the lunatics have been running the asylum and we're about to see that pendulum swing back. And um, I think there will be some people who haven't been loyal or perhaps haven't been reasonable are going to find um, the industry is, is a bit more difficult than it used to be. Ben, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. Today's podcast was produced by those excellent people at Abe's Audio. Abe, Udi and I will be back on Monday with Start the Week. Toodle pep. Unmade. Podcast edit by Abe's Audio.